Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 262 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the famous Rosenhan experiment. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1973, American psychologist David L. Rosenhan published a famous study called On Being Sane in Insane Places. It rocked the world of psychology and the science of psychology itself. Even today, Nearly 50 years later, it's one of the most famous psychological studies ever published. It's taught in virtually every course on basic psychology. It's referenced in countless other psychology papers. You'll read about it in standard introductions to psychology textbooks. But what was the Rosenhan experiment? Why was it important? And what does it reveal about the human mind? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should we say before we begin? Well, today's mystery is about a famous experiment in the field of psychiatry, psychology. So we'll be talking about the history of psychology and psychiatry and psychotherapy. That means that we'll be talking about how this science and discipline developed over time. And so we'll be talking about how things were before now. Uh, We'll be discussing pre-modern ideas and practices. So I want to make it clear. Do not think that psychology is automatically like this today. Every science, including the medical sciences, grows over time. And if you look back at the history of a medical science, you'll find ideas that were mistaken and practices that could be disturbing. But that shouldn't put you off from the science as it is today. It's important to know about the past so that we can learn from it. But it's also important not to let the past overshadow the progress that has been made in the intervening years. In physical medicine, we no longer regularly use bloodletting or use the theory of the four humors to diagnose medical conditions. And you shouldn't let uh, the fact that such things were once done deter you from getting medical help for physical problems today. In the same way, uh, psychological treatment has a history of discarded ideas and practices that people once tried in a sincere effort to help people, and you shouldn't let that history deter you from seeking psychological help today. If you need psychological help, whether it's for depression, anxiety, OCD, or anything else, you should get the help you need. You shouldn't need to worry about the things we're going to be talking about today. The man at the center of today's story is David Rosenhan. Who was he? He was an American psychologist. He was born in 1929 in Jersey City, New Jersey, and he died in 2012 in Palo Alto, California at the age of 82. He got his Ph.D. in psychology from Columbia University in 1958 in New York. And for much of his career, he was a professor of law and psychology at Stanford University in California. As a professor, his lectures were very popular and he was considered a very good teacher. He was considered quite charismatic, and according to author Susanna Cahalan, uh, some of the people who knew him said, He had a twinkle, Lawrence Keller, a close friend, recalled. 
If a party were dead, he would walk in, and all of a sudden, the party would come alive, his son Jack Rosenhan recounted. I think he always made people feel special, his research assistant Nancy Horn said. So lots of people found Dr. Rosenhan really likable, uh, a charismatic individual who really cared about others. And the thing he was most famous for, and that made his career, was a paper that he published in the journal Science in 1973. Science was, and is, one of the most prestigious peer-reviewed scientific journals, and so the paper got a lot of attention. It described an experiment he had performed on various psychiatric hospitals, both on the East and the West Coast here in America. It ended up challenging the integrity of psychological diagnosis, and it contributed to widespread changes in the field of psychology. Why did Rosenhan decide to do his experiment? There's always been a question of how to care for people who have mental illness. Uh, just like humans have always had to deal with physical sicknesses, they've also always had to deal with mental sicknesses. There have been uh, people with mental illness, including severe ones, all the way through human history. Now, for example, there's a famous case in the Bible where King David is on the run from King Saul, and in 1 Samuel 21, David has had to flee to Gath, whose king was named Achish, although he was also called Abimelech. But David is afraid of the king, so he pretends to be mad. And David was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? I love that. Do I lack madmen? It's like he's saying, don't I have enough of those already? What's this guy doing here? After David's ploy of pretending to be mad works, he writes Psalm 34 in Thanksgiving to God, which is one of the more famous psalms. It's the one that says, I sought the Lord and he answered me, he delivered me from all my fears, and it has the line, taste and see that the Lord is good, among others. But there's always been a question of how to handle people with severe mental illness, and in the economically underdeveloped state of the world, for most of human history, almost all of it, such people had to be cared for at home. That actually sounds pretty good, taking care of a mentally ill family member at home rather than shipping them off to a depersonalizing institution? Well, in some ways, uh, it, it could be good in some cases, but people were poor and they didn't have luxury accommodations at home. So if someone was mentally ill in a way that caused them to become disruptive or a danger to themselves or others in the family, they basically had to be confined. Uh, that would mean things like keeping them chained up, keeping them in a pit, or keeping them chained up in a pit. Um, eventually, as the economy developed, group homes for the severely mentally ill started popping up in various places, ultimately developing into psychiatric hospitals. At first, they were called asylums, and because of their clientele, they were referred to as lunatic asylums, mental asylums, or insane asylums. Now, those terms don't have a good sound these days. Didn't they have a reputation for really poor quality of care? 
Well, they came to acquire one, and that's why the term asylum, which originally and in its root meaning refers to a place of refuge or sanctuary, now has a bad sound in many contexts. One of the most famous asylums was a hospital founded all the way back in the year 1247 in London. The hospital was originally built as the priory of the New Order of Our Lady of Bethlehem, and originally it was for the care of the needy, not the mentally ill in particular. But over time, its function changed. By 1370, the British crown had seized it, so it was no longer run by the order, and today it's known as Bethlehem Royal Hospital. But because of the way pronunciations change over the centuries, Bethlehem or Bethlehem gave rise to another word, bedlam. After the hospital started principally serving those with severe mental illness, it became known as bedlam. And today, bedlam is a byword for chaos or madness. And the conditions inside the bedlam hospital, at least in the past, were not considered good. Were things any better on this side of the pond? Not really. Here in America in 1887, an intrepid journalist called Nellie Bly took an undercover assignment for the New York World, a newspaper owned by Joseph Pulitzer. And yes, that's the Pulitzer Prize guy, and we previously discussed him in episode 151, where we talked about his rivalry with other newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst and how their newspaper competition helped lead to the Spanish-American War after the explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. But that was more than 10 years in the future, and in 1887, Nellie Bly pretended to be mentally ill. As part of her undercover assignment, so that she could be admitted to the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island in Manhattan's East River. Having been admitted, she described the horrific conditions in the hospital, and her reporting eventually was published in a book called Ten Days in a Madhouse, or Nellie Bly's Experience on Blackwell's Island, Feigning Insanity in Order to Reveal Asylum Horrors, The Trying Ordeal of the New York World's Girl Correspondent. Which reveals that they liked having really long book titles back in the day. In any event, here are some of the things that Nellie Bly reported. By this time, I had made the acquaintance of the greater number of the 45 women in Hall 6. Let me introduce a few. Louise, the pretty German girl, whom I have spoken of formerly as being sick with fever, had the delusion that the spirits of her dead parents were with her. I have gotten many beatings from Miss Grady and her assistants, she said, and I am unable to eat the horrible food they give us. I ought not to be compelled to freeze for want of proper clothing. Oh, I pray nightly that I may be taken to my papa and mamma. One night, when I was confined at Bellevue, Dr. Field came. I was in bed and weary of the examination. At last I said, I am tired of this. I will talk no more. Won't you? He said angrily. I'll see if I can't make you. With this, he laid his crutch on the side of the bed, and getting up on it, he pinched me very severely in the ribs. I jumped up straight in bed and said, What do you mean by this? I want to teach you to obey when I speak to you, he replied. If I could only die and go to Papa... When I left, she was confined to bed with a fever, and maybe by this time she has her wish. There is a French woman confined in a hole six, or was during my stay, whom I firmly believed to be perfectly sane. I watched her and talked with her every day, excepting the last three, and I was unable to find any delusion or mania in her. 
Her name is Josephine Despro, and her husband and all her friends are in France. Josephine feels her position keenly. Her lips tremble, and she breaks down crying when she talks of her helpless condition. How did you get here? I asked. One morning, as I was trying to get breakfast, I grew deathly sick, and two officers were called in by the woman of the house, and I was taken to the station house. I was unable to understand their proceedings, and they paid little attention to my story. Doings in this country were new to me, and before I realized it, I was lodged as an insane woman in this asylum. When I first came, I cried that I was here without hope of release, and for crying, Miss Grady and her assistants choked me until they hurt my throat, for it has been sore ever since. In the cases of both of these women, uh, they were treated with what today we would classify as physical abuse, and that's only a small taste of what Nellie Bly reported. There is much, much more, and it gets much worse. Her reporting caused a sensation, and it led to a grand jury investigation and some changes in how things were done. Were efforts to reform mental hospitals like this common? They did happen periodically. After all, the whole purpose of establishing mental hospitals was to try to find ways to help people who had severe mental illnesses. But these were human institutions, and even with the best of intentions, things could go wrong. Sometimes that would be due to a lack of funding needed to provide proper care for the patients. Sometimes it would be due to a lack of knowledge of what techniques would actually help rather than hurt. You know, of course, they didn't have anything like modern techniques. Sometimes the policies of the institutions were badly designed, and sometimes it would just be the depersonalizing effect of original sin on our nature that would lead to cruel treatment. And so there were periodic reform efforts to improve the care of the mentally ill. By the mid-20th century, another such effort was underway here in America because as science advanced, it brought new techniques that came in for a great deal of criticism. Techniques like what? We'll talk more about them in future episodes, but some of them are connected with the CIA's MKUltra mind control experiments, but they were also in general use. They included things like insulin coma therapy, lobotomies, and electroshock therapy. Let's talk about each of those. What was insulin coma therapy? What happened in this one was that they would take an ordinary, physically healthy person, not a diabetic, and inject them with insulin so that their blood sugar would crash and they'd go into a diabetic coma. They would put people into diabetic comas dozens of times and keep them in comas for lengthy periods. The theory was that spending time in a diabetic coma would somehow help the person and contribute towards curing their mental illness, you know, like maybe letting their brain reset by giving it a long rest. Of course, it didn't. It actually harmed the patient. And today, insulin coma therapy is no longer used. What about lobotomies? Here, they would go into your brain and start severing connections in your prefrontal cortex. Often, this was done in a rather haphazard manner. For example, in the 1940s, American physician Walter Freeman developed a simplified technique uh, so that lobotomies could be performed in your doctor's office in just a few minutes. It was known as the ice pick method, and without getting too far into, into the details, they would lift up your eyelid, hammer an ice pick into the front part of your brain, and then swish it around a bit to start breaking neural connections. 
this could leave you in a passive zombie-like state where you couldn't take care of yourself. And it is no longer done. But it was still being done in the 1970s. And as we may discuss in a future episode, a doctor once suggested to my parents that they have a lobotomy performed on me when I was in first or second grade. I am forever grateful that my parents said no, and I cannot imagine how things would be different in my life if my parents had had me lobotomized. I find the thought of a lobotomized Jimmy Aiken horrifying. And without being too uh, sycophantic, I think the church and the world is better off with a Jimmy Aiken the way he is. So uh, thank well, you for that. So, so is this podcast. It, would, <laughs> it wouldn't be the same if I was lobotomized. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> All right. Then finally, what about electroshock therapy? Basically, in this one, they place electrodes on the outside of your head and then run an electric current through them and thus through your brain. Done right, this procedure has better outcomes than insulin coma therapy and frontal lobotomy. For example, it can improve mood in patients who have severe depression that is resistant to other forms of treatment. As a result, electroshock, known today as electroconvulsive therapy, is still used in a modified form, though today, among the modifications, it uses smaller electric currents than in the past. They also use general anesthesia and muscle relaxants to prevent the patient from being injured in the procedure, though it's still controversial. However, in the mid-20th century, the shocks were much larger, and they didn't protect the patient the same way, and it could, back then, be really horrifying, and the patient could end up injured and with permanent memory loss. With procedures like these being used, it's not surprising that mental illness had a real stigma in the 20th century, and many people didn't want to seek treatment. Yeah, if you read or watch mid-20th century fiction, it's clear that there's a big stigma about mental health issues. You'll often see old shows and movies where people adamantly declare, I don't need to see a shrink. I think this tendency is partly due to the fact that our minds are even more central to our identities than our bodies are. It's scary enough to think that something's wrong with your body, but to think something is wrong with your mind can be even more scary. And even if you were only going to be treated with something like Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis, a kind of talk therapy where you talked your way through your problems, it could be scary. Opening up to a stranger about deeply personal things isn't easy. The thought of going into a mental institution would be even more scary. Yes, and in the second half of the 20th century, it was actually fairly easy to be committed against your will. Around 1900, for example, if two doctors certified you as having severe mental illness, that was often enough to get you committed against your will. And people noticed that this tended to happen to women more than men. That could fit with the idea at the time that women were supposed to be more emotional than men, but people suspected what was really happening was something else. And if a marriage hit a rough patch, let's say the spouses were arguing with each other constantly, men, would, men with money were simply bribing doctors to certify that their wives were insane to get them out of the way. Thus, Nellie Bly wrote about the women she met, who she thought were perfectly sane and had been put away by their husbands 
on the outside of the asylum. In the mid-20th century, were people afraid of being falsely diagnosed and committed? Yes, uh, only by then it wasn't just women. Men also were concerned about this. And then there was the question of what happened once you were admitted to the hospital. Could you get out again? Would they let you out? Would they recognize that you were sane or that you had gotten over your mental problem? Or would they just dismiss your claims and keep you locked up? By the 1960s, psychiatric hospitals were getting significant resistance from a movement in American society that was suspicious of them, and actually many of them were starting to close. And that's where David Rosenhan comes into our story. What happened with him? He was concerned about people being falsely diagnosed as mentally ill, uh, committed to psychiatric hospitals, and then kept there even though they were perfectly sane. He also was concerned about the way patients were being treated in hospitals. He explains, Between 1969 and 1972, a group of colleagues and I gained admission to psychiatric hospitals by simulating, by faking a single symptom, which was that we said that we heard voices, and the voices said, empty, dull, thud. The moment we were admitted to the hospital, we abandoned our symptom, and we behave the way we usually behave. The question was, would anyone detect that we were sane? The answer was, no. No one ever did. Admitted with the diagnosis in the main of paranoid schizophrenia, we were discharged with the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia in remission. Now, in remission doesn't mean quite the same thing as sane. The term we use to describe the experience is dehumanized. Nobody talks to you. Nobody has any contact with you. The average contact of patients with staff was about six and a half minutes a day. Nobody comes to visit. The first time I was in a psychiatric hospital, on an admissions ward with 41 men, my wife constituted four of the seven visitors on a weekend. Psychiatric hospitals are storehouses for people in society whom you really don't want, whom you really don't understand, and for whom you've lost a great deal of sympathy. So that was the essence of the Rosenhan experiment. He and a group of people presented themselves to different psychiatric hospitals and claimed they had been hearing voices. They were admitted with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, or that was the diagnosis for almost all of them, and then they dropped this claim and started acting normally. Nobody detected the fact that they weren't actually mentally ill. Doctors and nurses would only spend like six minutes a day with them, and they were treated poorly, housed in cramped, overcrowded conditions, leading Dr. Rosenhan to regard the mental hospitals of the day as basically warehouses for people that society didn't want. Dr. Rosenhan used a term that many people will have heard of but may not know the meaning of. What is schizophrenia? It's a confusing term, and its meaning has changed over time. The term was only coined recently in 1908, and it comes from Greek roots. In Greek, schizo means to split or to cut, and phrain means heart, mind, or soul. So schizophrenia would mean split mind. Is that the same thing as having a split personality? 
No, it's not. And that's one of the things that makes the term schizophrenia misleading. Uh, People often confuse it with someone having multiple personalities, which is a different condition. It used to be called multiple personality disorder, but today it's called dissociative identity disorder. But schizophrenia is not the same thing at all. In this case, split mind didn't mean a mind that's split into multiple personalities. Instead, it referred to a mind whose functions are split. They aren't effectively coordinated. So the person's thoughts, memories, and perceptions are out of joint. It's been characterized as a condition where a person has frequent episodes of not being able to to distinguish between what's real and what's not. However, there isn't a good concise definition of schizophrenia. The definitions that are out there have changed over time, and they tend to be loose grab bags of symptoms, um, which is one of the criticisms of a lot of modern definitions of different mental conditions. And the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia in particular exhibit a kind of loose grab bag quality. In fact, some have argued that the term schizophrenia may have outlived its usefulness and that we should abandon it and deal with these symptoms under other headings, but that hasn't happened at least so far. Here is how the American Psychiatric Association describes schizophrenia in general terms. Schizophrenia is a chronic brain disorder that affects less than 1% of the U.S. population. When schizophrenia is active, symptoms can include delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, trouble with thinking, and lack of motivation. So today, the symptoms of schizophrenia include things like delusions or false beliefs, hallucinations or instances where a person sees or hears things that aren't real, disorganized speech where a person can't express themselves properly, trouble with thinking or mental confusion, and a lack of motivation where the person seems apathetic or uninterested. Is schizophrenia curable? No, unfortunately, it's regarded as incurable, though at least today it is held that there are ways of treating it. Here's what the American Psychiatric Association says. Though there is no cure for schizophrenia, many patients do well with minimal symptoms. A variety of antipsychotic medications are effective in reducing the psychotic symptoms present in the acute phase of the illness, and they also help reduce the potential for future acute episodes and their severity. Psychological treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy or supportive psychotherapy may reduce symptoms and enhance function. And other treatments are aimed at reducing stress, supporting employment, or improving social skills. Fifty years ago, back in 1969, when the Rosenhan experiment was conducted, There were fewer ways of treating schizophrenia, and there were certainly no ways of curing it. So if they diagnosed you with the condition, they would never say that you were cured, only, at best, that your schizophrenia was in remission, meaning you weren't having symptoms. And since one of the key symptoms of schizophrenia was auditory hallucinations, like hearing voices, that's what Dr. Rosenhan relied on in his experiment. He and his associates reported hearing voices of unseen people in order to get themselves admitted to psychiatric hospitals as schizophrenics. And when his paper describing the experiment came out in the prestigious journal Science, one of the most famous scientific journals, it got a huge amount of attention. Then let's talk about his paper on being sane in insane places. What does it say? 
It begins by saying, If sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? The question is neither capricious nor itself insane. However much we may be personally convinced that we can tell the normal from the abnormal, the evidence is simply not compelling. It is commonplace, for example, to read about murder trials wherein eminent psychiatrists for the defense are contradicted by equally eminent psychiatrists for the prosecution on the matter of the defendant's sanity. More generally, there are a great deal of conflicting data on the reliability, utility, and meaning of such terms as sanity, insanity, mental illness, and schizophrenia. Dr. Rosenhan then goes through the details of how his experiment was conducted. He describes how eight individuals were sent into 12 different hospitals. These individuals were all healthy and had never been diagnosed with a serious mental illness. Uh, because of the fact that they were healthy, his article refers to them as pseudopatients or false patients. The eight pseudopatients were a varied group. One was a psychology graduate student in his 20s. The remaining seven were older and established. Among them were three psychologists, a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, a painter, and a housewife. Three pseudopatients were women, five were men. All of them employed pseudonyms, lest their alleged diagnoses embarrass them later. The fact that multiple pseudopatients were working in psychology or were studying psychology could catch the attention of the staff in mental hospitals. It could raise suspicions about them or cause them to be treated differently from other patients. So, those who were in mental health professions alleged another occupation in order to avoid the special attentions that might be accorded by staff as a matter of courtesy or caution to ailing colleagues. In the first experiment, Dr. Rosenhan uh, let a couple of higher officials in the hospital know what he was doing, but this was kept hidden from the staff, and nobody else in the hospital knew the real reason he was there so that it wouldn't affect the way that he was treated. There also was a ninth pseudopatient, but Dr. Rosenhan says his data was excluded from the study, and he explains why in a footnote. Data from a ninth pseudopatient are not incorporated in this report because, although his sanity went undetected, he falsified aspects of his personal history including his marital status and parental relationships. His experimental behaviors, therefore, were not identical to those of the other pseudopatients. So, in addition to using a false name and reporting hearing voices, the ninth pseudopatient also altered details about his marital status and his relationship with his parents. The hospital staff didn't detect the fact he was sane, but because he did things the other volunteers did not do, that could have an effect on the way he was treated in the hospital. So Dr. Rosenhan eliminated his results from consideration lest the pool of data be contaminated by a disanalogous case, and it would be good science to do that. What about the hospitals that the volunteers went to? What were they like? They wanted a sense of what it was like to go to a mental hospital in general. So they didn't go to just one type. You know, if they went to fancy elite hospitals for the wealthy, that wouldn't tell you what things were like in old rundown hospitals. And if they went to just old rundown hospitals, that wouldn't tell you what things were like in fancy elite up-to-date ones. So they went to a mix. In order to generalize the findings, admission into a variety of hospitals was sought. The 12 hospitals in the sample were located in five different states on the east and west coasts. Some were old and shabby, some were quite new, 
Some had good staff-patient ratios. Others were quite understaffed. Only one was a strict private hospital. All of the others were supported by state or federal funds or, in one instance, by university funds. Rosenhan then describes how they got in. After calling the hospital for an appointment, the pseudo-patient arrived at the admissions office complaining that he had been hearing voices. Asked what the voices said, he replied that they were often unclear, but as far as he could tell, they said empty, hollow, and thud. These were chosen because they're rather gloomy and could suggest that the patient had a gloomy inner life, like he was feeling personally empty and hollow and that his life was unsuccessful and just kind of making a thud. Hearing voices is one of the classic symptoms attributed to schizophrenia, and all but one of the pseudopatients were diagnosed as schizophrenic. The other was diagnosed as manic depressive or having what today is called bipolar disorder. Beyond alleging the symptoms and falsifying name, vocation, and employment, no further alterations of person, history, or circumstances were made. The significant events of the pseudo-patient's life history were presented as they had actually occurred. Relationships with parents and siblings, with spouse and children, with people at work and in school, consistent with the aforementioned exceptions, were described as they were or had been. So that's why pseudo-patient number nine was eliminated, because he changed details about his marital status and his relationship with his parents. And then, once they got into the hospitals... Immediately upon admission to the psychiatric ward, the pseudo-patient ceased simulating any symptoms of abnormality. When asked by staff how he was feeling, he indicated that he was fine, that he no longer experienced symptoms. He responded to instructions from attendants, to calls for medication, which was not swallowed, and to dining hall instructions. So afterward, they presented themselves as totally normal, and they waited to see if the staff would figure out that they were normal. A special word should be said about the medications, because if you're a normal person who does not need psychiatric medicine and you start taking it anyway, it can mess you up. And if the medication is making you act abnormal, that would interfere with the purpose of the experiment, which was to see how quickly the staff would detect that these pseudopatients were normal. So Rosenhan taught the volunteers how to cheek pills. With the hospital staff watching, the volunteers would put the pills in their mouths, but they'd keep them under their tongues so that they could drink the water that they were given without pushing the pills down their throats. Then they'd let the hospital staff see that their mouths were empty, and afterwards they'd switch the pill from being under the tongue to being stored in their cheek until they were able to privately take it out of their mouths and either pocket it or flush it down the toilet. Rosenhan indicated that there were two cases, though, where the medicine ended up being swallowed. Yes, in the case of a volunteer named Bill, he received a capsule of Thorazine that had a coating that was designed to dissolve very quickly. And when he put it under his tongue, it started burning his mouth, and he couldn't get rid of it before his swallow reflex kicked in. The other case involved a patient named Harry, who was confronted with a different challenge. Author Susanna Cahalan writes, Harry presented with enough psychotic symptoms for doctors to prescribe him daily doses of Thorazine. Trouble was, the drugs were not in pill form, but liquid. Liquid Thorazine was introduced in the 1960s as a response to the pervasive problem of patients cheeking pills. 
The ad campaign in the 1960s read, Warning, mental patients are notorious drug evaders. But David Rosenhan's instructions hadn't covered what to do in this situation. Harry thought, Okay, David, what do I do now? And hesitated for just a moment before he swallowed the unpleasant syrup, grimacing as it slid down his throat, bracing himself for the drug to take effect. Hours later, nothing had happened. So, no ill effects followed. The dose of Thorazine may have been too low to affect Harry, and the doctors later switched him to pills, which he could cheek. What did the pseudopatients do with their time while they were in the hospitals? Well, there wasn't a lot to do, so the pseudopatients spent a good bit of time taking notes on what was happening around them, notes that would later be used in Dr. Rosenhan's study. And this led to one of the most famous quotations from the experiment. One of the things that they were looking at was how, even though the volunteers were normal, healthy people, once the label schizophrenic got slapped on them, the doctors and nurses looked at everything they did through the lens of whether it was some abnormal symptom. And so, nursing records for three patients indicate that the writing was seen as an aspect of their pathological behavior. Patient engaged in writing behavior was the daily nursing comment on one of the pseudo-patients who was never questioned about his writing. And that statement, patient engages in writing behavior, is a famous quote. I remember it from back when I was taking an introduction to psychology class in college. The fact that the volunteer was writing stuff down was interpreted as if the writing behavior was possibly a symptom of some kind, instead of just noting, patient enjoys writing or Patient writes a lot, which sounds much more healthy. Here's a similar case. When Rosenhan was a pseudo-patient, here's what he told them truthfully about his family background. He had had a close relationship with his mother, but was rather remote from his father during his early childhood. During adolescence and beyond, however, his father became a close friend, while his relationship with his mother cooled. His present relationship with his wife was characteristically close and warm, Apart from occasional angry exchanges, friction was minimal. The children had rarely been spanked. So all that sounds quite normal. But here is how they interpreted it through the lens of his diagnosis as a schizophrenic. This white, 39-year-old male manifests a long history of considerable ambivalence in close relationships, which begins in early childhood. A warm relationship with his mother cools during his adolescence. A distant relationship with his father is described as becoming very intense. Effective stability is absent. His attempts to control emotionality with his wife and children are punctuated by angry outbursts and, in the case of the children, spankings. And while he says that he has several good friends, one senses considerable ambivalence embedded in those relationships also. So that makes it sound like all the perfectly normal stuff he told them was actually pathological. Uh, for example, he said his relationship with his wife was close and warm, with only occasional arguments, and that the children were rarely spanked. But they turned that into... His attempts to control emotionality with his wife and children are punctuated by angry outbursts, and in the case of the children, spankings. Whoa, distort things much? When they analyzed the notes that the medical staff had taken at the different hospitals, they discovered that in four of the hospitals they studied, 
the staff and attendants spent most of their time in an observation room that the pseudo-patients nicknamed the cage. It turns out that the staff attendants only spent an average of 11% of their time outside of the cage, and even that 11% wasn't all spent interacting with patients. It included other things like coming out of the cage to fold laundry. And the doctors barely spent any time with the patients. They estimated it to be less than seven minutes a day. They also tested the reactions of the staff by asking them questions like, could you tell me when I will be eligible for ground privileges, meaning when can I go for a walk outside, or when will I be presented at the staff meeting, or when am I likely to be discharged? But they found the staff to be cold and impersonal. By far, their most common response consisted of either a brief response to the question offered while they were on the move and with head averted, or no response at all. The encounter frequently took the following bizarre form. Pseudopatient. Pardon me, Dr. X. Could you tell me when I am eligible for grounds privileges? Physician. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Moves off without waiting for a response. They observed that the staff frequently treated patients as if they were just not there. A nurse unbuttoned her uniform to adjust her brassiere in the presence of an entire ward of viewing men. One did not have the sense that she was being seductive. Rather, she didn't notice us. A group of staff persons might point to a patient in the day room and discuss him animatedly as if he were not there. And in some cases, they observed verbal or physical abuse of the patients. I have records of patients who were beaten by staff for the sin of having initiated verbal contact. During my own experience, for example, one patient was beaten in the presence of other patients for having approached an attendant and told him, I like you. A patient who had not heard a call for medication would be roundly excoriated. And the morning attendants would often wake patients with, come on you, MFers, out of bed. On the ward, attendants delivered verbal and occasionally serious physical abuse to patients in the presence of others, the pseudopatients, who were writing it all down. Abusive behavior, on the other hand, terminated quite abruptly when other staff members were known to be coming. Staff are credible witnesses. Patients are not. That represented the worst of what they saw, and Rosenhan makes it clear that such abuse was not the norm. It was not like in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was a very popular book at the time. It was written by counterculture novelist Ken Kesey, and it would become a very popular movie a few years later in 1975, which starred Jack Nicholson. In the movie, the chief nurse of the hospital is Nurse Mildred Ratched, and a name like Mildred Ratched is a trait name that sounds like mildew and wretched, and that tells you what a negative character she is. She was played by actress Louise Fletcher, who won an Academy Award for her performance, and Louise Fletcher also would go on to play the unlikable space pope Kai Wen in Deep Space Nine. But unlike the heartless nurse Ratched, Dr. Rosenhan is at pains to say in his article that most of the staff they encountered were genuinely caring people who really did want to help others but they put themselves in a bad situation by, or they were put in a bad situation by the institutional environment and culture within the mental hospitals. How long did it take for the pseudo-patients to be discharged? It varied between seven and 52 days, so between one and seven and a half weeks. 
the average stay was 19 days, or just under three weeks. In some cases, the pseudopatients had to press to be released, and in no case did the staff ever conclude that the pseudopatients were faking. Instead, schizophrenia is regarded as being incurable, as we mentioned, and so the pseudopatients were released with a diagnosis of schizophrenia in remission, meaning that they were still schizophrenic, but they weren't currently manifesting any symptoms. However, even though the medical staff didn't detect that they were hoaxing, some people did. And this is another famous aspect of the study. Rosenhan states, It was quite common for the patients to detect the pseudopatient's sanity. During the first three hospitalizations, when accurate counts were kept, 35 of a total of 118 patients on the admissions ward voiced their suspicions, some vigorously. You're not crazy. You're a journalist or a professor, referring to the continual note-taking. You're checking up on the hospital. The fact that the patients often recognize normality when staff did not raises important questions. And in fact, they were not crazy, and they were checking up on the hospital. So the fact patients noticed this, but the hospital staff didn't, does raise important questions. Did anybody hear about Dr. Rosenhan's research before his article came out in the journal Science? Apparently so, because in his article, he refers to a teaching hospital whose staff had heard about his findings. They didn't believe that these kind of errors could occur in their hospital, so Dr. Rosenhan decided to test them. In the article, he says, The staff of the teaching hospital was informed that at some time during the following three months, one or more pseudopatients would attempt to be admitted into the psychiatric hospital. Each staff member was asked to rate each patient who presented himself at admissions or on the ward according to the likelihood that the patient was a pseudopatient. A 10-point scale was used, with a 1 and 2 reflecting high confidence that the patient was a pseudopatient. Judgments were obtained on 193 patients who were admitted for psychiatric treatment. All staff who had had sustained contact with or primary responsibility for the patient, attendants, nurses, psychiatrists, physicians, and psychologists, were asked to make judgments. 41 patients were alleged with high confidence to be pseudopatients by at least one member of the staff. 23 were considered suspect by at least one psychiatrist. 19 were suspected by one psychiatrist and one other staff member. So the staff at the teaching hospital suspected that quite a number of the patients were actually pseudopatients that Dr. Rosenhan had sent to their hospital to test them. He'd said that he'd send one or more such pseudopatients, but probably nothing like 19 to 41. So they were almost certainly overestimating, and in fact, they were overestimating, because Dr. Rosenhan then revealed that he had lied. He hadn't sent any pseudopatients into their hospital. It was all a trick. And the fact that they suspected so many of their patients of actually being sane revealed that when they were asked to think about whether someone might be faking, they couldn't reliably tell the difference between those who were mentally ill and those who weren't. What happened after his paper came out in Science? It caused a huge sensation, and it's gone on to be one of the most influential papers in the history of psychology ever. Many professionals in the field hailed it as an important study whose implications need to be taken seriously, while others 
harshly criticized it, as you'd expect. And it influenced the field by changing the way diseases like schizophrenia are diagnosed. In psychology, one of the most influential books is known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM for short. The DSM is one of the key books that's used to diagnose whether someone has a mental illness. It's published by the American Psychiatric Association, and its diagnostic criteria are widely used in the field. The first edition of the DSM was published in 1952, and a revision known as the DSM II was published in 1968. But there was a lot of criticism of the DSM II, and a revision of it was underway in the 1970s. In the process of readying the third edition, or DSM III, the findings of the Rosenhan experiment were taken into account. The revisers of the DSM were determined to make sure that they wrote the criteria for mental disorders, including schizophrenia, in a way that would not allow Rosenhan pseudopatients to get through initial psychological screenings at mental hospitals. So, the Rosenhan experiment had a major impact on the whole field of psychology through its influence on trying to uh, make diagnostic criteria more rigorous, and by bringing attention to the issue of whether people were actually mentally ill or not. It also had the effect of encouraging mental hospitals to reclassify people as actually safe to release back into society, for good or ill. But one way or another, the experiment had a major impact over the whole field of psychology. In assessing the Rosenhan experiment, what questions do we still need to look at? We need to look at questions like, what legitimate concerns did the experiment raise? Were the criticisms of it valid? And just how much of the experiment was Dr. Rosenhan actually lying through his teeth about? So there's our twist for this episode. <laughs> That's a good twist. Well, before we get to that, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Vincent F., Dan T., Lisa M., Aaron W., Tamara D., and Joe R. from Fargo. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by... Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Jimmy, before the break, you dropped a bombshell by suggesting that Dr. Rosenhan may have been deliberately lying about the experiment and its results. We need to resolve the, that issue in order to assess the experiment's significance from the faith and reason perspectives. Why did you raise the issue, and what evidence do we have that he lied? The issue first came to public prominence only recently, in 2019, and a lot of people who know about the experiment still haven't heard about this aspect of the case. Um, evidence that Dr. Rosenhan was distorting, at a minimum, what happened was published in a book by author Susanna Cahalan, which deals with the experiment. To avoid spoiling the surprise, 
I've avoided saying the book's name thus far, but it's called The Great Pretender. Susanna was originally a big fan of Dr. Rosenhan, which led her to want to write about him and the experiment. But after she gained access to his private papers, she started noticing problems, and her investigation suggested that, to a significant degree, Dr. Rosenhan was actually a great pretender, that he lied about significant portions of the experiment, and that he may have lied much more than we currently know. For example, You'll recall how in his paper, Rosenhan said that the pseudopatients went in reporting only a single symptom, that they had begun to hear a voice that said things like empty, hollow, or thud, and they didn't have any other symptoms. Well, Susanna Cahalan got access to Dr. Rosenhan's medical records from when he checked himself in as the first pseudopatient, and she described what she found in an interview on C-SPAN. When did you start asking yourself questions about its validity? I would say, you know, when I started to dig dig into those files and I actually got access to David Rosenhan's medical records, that's when questions started to really emerge. Uh, and in those medical records, I found that David Rosenhan did not just exhibit a voice that says, thud, empty, hollow, as he often said he did, as was a huge part of that paper, he actually uh, exhibited way more severe signs of psychosis than that. In the medical records, I hear repeatedly that he said he put copper pots over his ears to drown out the noises, that he had been dealing with hearing voices for many, many months, that he had a long history of depression, and that he was often suicidal. And that, to me, created a far more nuanced and a far, a far more severe portrait of a psychotic illness than I hear a voice that says thud, empty, hollow. And once I got access to that, other things started to not make sense. And maybe things that I had been ignoring previously um, started to fall in line as um, major issues with the study. So Rosenhan lied in his paper in Science about what actually happened in his own experience. He didn't check himself in reporting just one symptom. He checked himself in reporting a bunch of symptoms, and that's extremely serious. First, it means that the psychiatric staff weren't basing their diagnosis of him on just one symptom. So their diagnosis wasn't as unreasonable as he made it sound. He had a bunch of other symptoms he told them about. And second, He lied in a scientific paper he published that automatically raises questions about everything else he says in the paper. Who knows how much of the data he was fudging or faking? Did Cahalan uncover additional evidence of problems with the paper? Yeah, she did. Uh, One of the things Cahalan wanted to do was find the other seven people that were in the paper as pseudopatients. She took six years to look for them. She talked to hundreds of people, uh, including Rosenhan's family and his relatives and associates. She even hired a private detective to find them. So you set out to find the other people who participated. Uh, How did that effort go? It was a rabbit hole, um, and unfortunately, I was able to find only one of the original eight. And this is, again, six years of digging. I hired a private investigator. I, you know, interviewed hundreds of people uh, and unfortunately could only find one. It was a gra- he was a graduate 
graduate student at Stanford. He was in David Rosenhan's class on psychopathology. And this was in 1970. And he went undercover at Agnew State Hospital. His name is Bill Underwood. And he, um, I, I tracked him down to the Austin Hills and interviewed him and his wife. So she was able to find the eighth pseudo patient whose real name is Bill Underwood. But despite her exhaustive search, he was the only other pseudo patient from the study that she was able to verify was real. She could find no evidence of the other six having existed, despite talking to Rosenhan's relatives, friends, and colleagues, among her other efforts. Wasn't there a ninth pseudo-patient that Rosenhan cut from the study? Yes, and Susanna Cahalan looked for him, too. You'll recall that, in a footnote, Rosenhan said that he cut this patient's data out of the study for these reasons. Data from a ninth pseudo-patient are not incorporated in this report because, although his sanity went undetected, he falsified aspects of his personal history, including his marital status and parental relationships. His experimental behaviors, therefore, were not identical to those of the other pseudo-patients. On the surface, that sounds good from a scientific perspective. If one subject changed aspects of his history, like saying he was married when he wasn't or that he had a bad relationship with his parents when he didn't, then his experience wouldn't fit the pattern of only reporting the one symptom of the voice that says empty. So you'd want to eliminate him from the study to have a consistent data set. However, we now know that Rosenhan's own experience didn't fit the reported model. He told the psychiatric staff he had a bunch of symptoms, and if he was so concerned about data integrity, then he should have cut his own data out of the study too. But he didn't, and that suggests there may have been another reason why he cut the ninth pseudopatient's data. Here is what Cahalan discovered after she found Bill Underwood. So I, I found him and, and felt very positive about that. But through him, I found another person. He was not one of the eight. He was uh, a ninth pseudo-patient, um, a man who I call now the footnote in many ways. Yeah. Who was he? His name was Harry Lando. And he, his name is Harry Lando. He is a professor of psychology at uh, University of Minnesota. And he studies smoking cessation. He, he, he started also as a, uh, as, as a uh, graduate student at Stanford and actually stuck with psychology. Um, he went for 19 days undercover as a patient at the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital and was misdiagnosed, as David wrote, everyone was, with schizophrenia. Um, however, that's, the, that's where his situation and his experience, the similarities ended. He had described to me um, that he had a positive experience in, during his 19 days. He was an unhappy graduate student at the time. He was in an unhappy marriage. He felt lost and isolated. He felt like he was in a very competitive atmosphere in, at Stanford. And when he, had, when he admitted himself to the hospital, he felt this tremendous relief. He walked on the wards and he described them as light and bright. The nurses were engaged. No one wore uniforms. There were men and women they, that sang, they sang Peter, Paul and Mary in the hallways. You know, he, he had a, a wonderful 19 days and he felt that it was a healing environment. Uh, and this 
did not match David's thesis at all. Um, this was kind of the opposite of David's thesis in many ways. So therefore, he was not included in the final product. Unfortunately, David Rosenhan passed away before I started the study. I could not ask him directly, but Harry Lando believes very ardently that his data did not support the thesis that David Rosenhan was writing, and so he discarded the data. And given what we know about Rosenhan's lack of concern about data integrity, that's a very plausible theory. It looks like the real reason he cut patient nine from the study was because patient nine had a great experience in the hospital. And that didn't fit the thesis, Rosenhan wanted to argue. He wanted all of the patients he reported on to have had horrible experiences. So he eliminated data that didn't support that view. But then things got worse. The information that Kahalen was tracking down the pseudopatients came from Rosenhan's private papers. She was given access to those, and you'd think that there would be a list of the pseudopatients with their real names in his private papers. You'd also think that there would be the original handwritten notes that all the pseudopatients took during their hospital stays. You know, all that stuff they allegedly were writing down about their observations of what was happening. And you'd think that there would be letters between him and the pseudopatients. But there wasn't. None of that stuff. At least not in what she had. What she did have, was, among other things, was an unfinished book manuscript. After his paper came out in science and rocked the field of psychiatry, the publisher Doubleday asked him to write a book. They gave him a big advance on the book, which would have been a smash hit follow-up to the original paper in science. It would have been a very dramatic book, and it would have been a bestseller. And soon, Rosenhan had written eight chapters of it, more than 100 pages. But Kahalen also found something else in his private papers. A draft copy of the original science paper. And in this draft copy, you know, earlier than the published one, patient nine had not yet been cut. His data was still in there. And here is what she found. As a journalist digging through all this stuff, what was the point when the scale got tipped for you, uh, when you went from exploring to questioning? I would say, I would say probably Harry. I mean, I, you know, the medical records for me were were damning. Um, I also, in the in kind of a, a kind of lead up to discovering those medical records, I also discovered some discrepancy with data, which to me, uh, in a scientific paper, to have issues with the data was at that point it, it tipped me over to really feeling that there were some like serious problems with the paper, and that was reflected actually through through Harry because I had two drafts of the study. One draft had nine pseudo patients, no footnote. The other draft had eight pseudo patients, one footnote, leading me to believe, I think very fairly, that the earlier paper he did not remove David, uh, remove Harry Lando, and the later paper he did. And unfortunately, none of the numbers, not one, changed. We still had 2,100 pills given. We still had, you know, um, down to the decimal number of minutes that psychiatrists spent on average outside of their uh, on the floor or nurses spent out of the cage. I mean, very highly specific numbers, not one changed. And that to me was was pretty damning that I thought, OK, there is some this is beyond sloppiness. There's there is some kind of willful uh, massaging here. 
So Rosenhan wrote the first draft of the article with Patient 9, or Harry Lando, in it. He included all of Lando's data in the numerical calculations and charts in the paper, but when he decided to cut Lando, he didn't go back and redo the calculations and charts. He left them all alone, which is further evidence of scientific fraud, saying that this data represents eight patients when it actually represents nine, assuming that they even existed. That's further evidence of Rosenhan's lack of concern for data integrity. But it's also something else because it confirms his motive for dropping Lando. If he had published a version of the paper with Lando in it in the prestigious journal Science, and it was uniformly negative about the pseudopatient's experiences, then fellow psychologist Harry Lando would read it and say, hey, but I had a good experience and I told you so. If Lando was in the study, in the published version of the paper, he could expose Rosenhan's fraud. So Rosenhan decided to drop patient nine. And he included a footnote saying that the reason was because what he had told the psychiatric staff didn't match what the other pseudopatients had. That way, Lando would read the paper and say, oh, I guess my data isn't in here and I was dropped for the reason the footnote says. But really, Rosenhan did have Lando's data in there, if the numbers are even real at all. And the reason he dropped Lando in, and included the footnote was that so he could present the pseudopatient's experiences as uniformly negative. We know it wasn't because Lando told them something different than the other pseudopatients. Rosenhan himself had told the hospital officials something different than the other pseudopatients. What happened with Rosenhan's book for Doubleday? Did it ever come out? No, it didn't. And at some point, Rosenhan simply stopped working on it, and it was never published. That, of course, caused problems because Doubleday had given him a big advance in anticipation of a bestseller. And he didn't give them the advance money back. So, did his pub publisher answer the question of why his book never got published? He, the publisher actually sued him um, because he never delivered. And that was another and that was another kind of clue to me that kept kind of haunting me. He said, why? What, why didn't he finish this book? He had eight chapters written. He had the good bulk of it, well over 100 pages written. This would have been a, a smash success. The study was huge. He was a media celebrity. Why not publish the book? And that really was an interesting thing. And so I tracked down um, a lawsuit in 1980. A Doubleday was his publisher. And they actually sued him to recoup the advance that they had given him, which was a pretty sizable advance. So in light of what we've already learned, that looks quite suspicious. If you're a media celebrity who's rocked your own field of science, you can rock it even more and make a lot of money just by publishing a book-length version of your paper with more detail. That will enhance your scientific impact, your career, and your pocketbook even further. It wouldn't make sense at all to do all this work on the book and then just stop. Unless you got into writing the book and found that the old adage is true, that it's easier to tell the truth than to keep track of all the lies you've been telling. You might give yourself away in a book-length treatment of the topic. And even if you didn't contradict yourself, the longer you talk, 
the more data you're giving people that can be checked. Rosenhan had made a bunch of enemies with his paper in science. Loads of psychiatrists hated what he had written. And with all those enemies, some of them might take his book and start fact-checking it and discover his fraud. Even Doubleday might fact-check it before publication and discover the fraud. So, it was better to bail on the book project and have it never come out. At least, that's how it looks to me. Despite Rosenhan's apparent misdoings, that doesn't mean that his paper didn't raise legitimate issues. Are there things that could be learned here? Well, we know that he and one of the other pseudo-patients, Bill Underwood, really did go into psychiatric hospitals. Cahalan got Rosenhan's medical records, which confirmed his stay, and after she tracked down Bill Underwood, he confirmed his stay, too. There also was Harry Lando, although Rosenhan allegedly dropped him from the paper. And even though Rosenhan misrepresented aspects of what happened to him personally, like the symptoms he reported, his and Underwood's descriptions of their experiences in the hospital may be accurate in substance. There certainly were poorly run, dehumanizing psychiatric institutions at the time. Even before the paper came out, those were in the process of being closed down, and the paper helped accelerate that closure. Was that a good thing? It was a mixed bag. On the one hand, there were really terrible institutions. Once you were in one, you often couldn't get out, and you had a lack of rights and might be subjected to inhuman treatments. So from that perspective, the closure of the institutions was a good thing, and the patient's rights movement has ranged for much better protection for mental patients. But the problem is that we now do not have enough places for people with severe mental illness to go. As a result, a lot of severely mentally ill people end up going to jail because their illnesses may result in them violating the law, and others end up by becoming homeless, where they live in squalor and sometimes self-medicate with narcotics that result in their lives being made worse. So the good news is that terrible institutions got shut down, but the bad news is that a lot of severely mentally ill people have been left without a place to go other than jail or the streets. Those negative effects can't all be blamed on Rosenhan's paper, though. The closure of mental institutions was already underway, and it's not his paper's fault that they weren't replaced with an adequate system. What about the issue that he was focused on, the misdiagnosis of psychiatric illnesses? Does the paper have value on this subject? There's a debate about that. As we mentioned, there were a lot of critics of the paper, and some of them made really good points from a scientific perspective. Rosenhan made it sound like the psychiatric hospitals were casually misdiagnosing people with schizophrenia just on the basis of having recently had an auditory hallucination. But we now know, at least in Rosenhan's own case, that wasn't what happened. He reported a bunch of symptoms. But there's another reason to question Rosenhan's conclusion about casual diagnosis, namely the fact that he and other pseudopatients lied to the psychiatric staff. One of Rosenhan's sharpest critics was a psychiatrist named Robert Spitzer, and that's not the same guy as the Jesuit priest. In 1975, uh, Spitzer responded to Rosenhan's paper, quoting neuroscientist Seymour Ketty as having said, If I were to drink a quart of blood and concealing what I had done, 
come to the emergency room of any hospital vomiting blood, the behavior of the staff would be quite predictable. If they labeled and treated me as having a bleeding peptic ulcer, I doubt that I could argue convincingly that medical science does not know how to diagnose that condition. So yeah, if you go into a medical institution and lie about your symptoms, if you give them symptoms that are intentionally those of a known condition and they then diagnose you with that condition, then it kind of undercuts your ability to say, hey, you misdiagnosed me. No, duh, you just committed medical fraud. They took you at your word and diagnosed you accordingly. What about the fact that they didn't then realize that the pseudo-patients were mentally well? They gave them final diagnoses of schizophrenia in remission. Well, if they had been schizophrenic as they initially held themselves out, then that also would be an accurate diagnosis. In medicine, a remission is the partial or complete disappearance of the signs or, and symptoms of a disease. If you have cancer, for example, and all the signs of it vanish, then your cancer is in remission. Although these days, doctors tend to prefer saying no evidence of disease rather than cured, since cancer may come back. In the same way, if you have schizophrenia and then the symptoms completely vanish, you will, your schizophrenia is in remission, even if it comes back in the future. So if the pseudopatients had been schizophrenic and then their symptoms disappeared, saying their schizophrenia was in remission would be accurate. You could quibble about the exact way you want to say that, but the substance of the diagnosis would be correct. We mentioned earlier that one of the effects of Rosenhan's article was that it affected the way that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, is written. Did it have a positive impact here? Maybe. Uh, Rosenhan's critic Robert Spitzer was the guy who was behind the third edition of the DSM, and even though he hated Rosenhan's paper, he used it as an occasion to try to tighten up the definitions of mental disorders that were being used. And as they were revising it, he would reportedly ask his colleagues, okay, whether Rosenhan's pseudopatients would be able to get past particular definitions they were crafting. So that's good, but the DSM itself has come in for serious criticism, and it's starting to fall out of favor and being replaced by competitors. Susanna Kahalen explains. So there was a, a relationship between the development of that and Rosenhan's yeah. study. Um, it, it, was it one where you questioned the DSM ratings? I do. I, I mean, I, and I think that most psychiatrists who are, especially research psychiatrists, but most psychiatrists who are more in the cutting edge areas definitely question the DSM. Even the NIMH now um, want uh, their, uh, their researchers to use a different criteria than the DSM. They... The DSM presents illnesses in hardline senses. We have schizophrenia, we have bipolar disorder, and they're kind of, um, they're separated, right? And they have different criteria. But what people are finding in the research side, again, these are all big questions, we don't have answers, but what they're finding is that genetically um, there are overlaps and that there are kind of more gray areas between these diagnoses and there are hard lines. So I think that Rosenhan's pushed the field to kind of, you know, kind of defend itself and say, we are legitimate, this is our criteria, and we're going to be very strident about the terms that we use. And But unfortunately, in response, it kind of created a black and white system where it's, a lot of it's very gray. Everything that, re that deals with the brain is very gray. 
By putting sharp lines between different diagnoses, the DSM is open to criticism that it's masking the real complexity of things. And maybe rather than focusing on clusters of symptoms that we slap a label on, maybe we should just describe the symptoms a person is having and treat those. At least it's arguable that we should be taking a symptom-based approach rather than a cluster-based approach, given how much overlap and fuzziness there is in this area. I don't have a position on that, but I am aware of the debate over whether the DSM uses a good approach or not. I do think it can do harm to people to slap scary labels on them that they can never get rid of. Uh, Sometimes conditions may be chronic and long-lasting, but just because you have a symptom at a given point doesn't mean you'll always have it. In fact, sometimes a symptom doesn't even rise to the level of being a problem or even a sign of something being wrong. For example, uh, you know, consider hearing a voice. That could be because of a mental illness, which we currently call, call schizophrenia, but the large majority of humans have an inner monologue going on in their heads all the time. Although, just like people with aphantasia don't have mental images, some people don't have an inner voice, but most people do, and occasionally a word or phrase may bubble up from your subconscious when you weren't expecting it, and that's not a sign of anything is wrong or anything needing treatment. And maybe you're experiencing an apparition of a ghost or a saint, and you're perfectly healthy and and again, in this case, no mental illness at all. Jimmy, what can we say about the Rosenhan experiment from the faith perspective? Well, let's see. Um, scientific fraud, bad. That's the major thing we need to say. If you're going to do scientific research, do not manipulate or fabricate data. That's the main point. However, the issue of mental illness and how to help people with it is a real one. Mental illnesses are real and they cause human suffering. Um, we can be understanding of the mistakes that have been made in healthcare facilities when the, a science is in its early stages of development. And in the 20th century, psychiatry was a very young science. So we need to continue to do research and look at the best ways uh, to help people who are suffering as a result of mental issues, including treating them with dignity and respect and not depersonalizing them the way many psychiatric hospitals did in the past. Anything else we should say before we finish? I want to thank one of the mysterious irregulars, Dr. Joseph Sheridan, who is a psychiatrist here in California. After I wrote the script for this episode, he reviewed it and gave it a clean bill of mental health. He also offered an additional thought, writing, Of note is Rosenhan claiming that the pseudo-patients were kept in the hospital for days or even weeks after they requested to discharge despite denying any further symptoms. I would point out that in the United States, patients can only be kept in a psychiatric hospital against their will if they are felt to be a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or so ill that they are unable to properly care for themselves. And even then, patients have a right to contest an involuntary hospitalization in a court of law. This reflects the situation of the law today. Uh, It wasn't always the case in the past, but today there are robust patient protections, which is a good thing. And thanks again, Dr. Sheridan. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Rosenhan experiment? David Rosenhan was reportedly a brilliant, charismatic man, but he went dark side with his famous experiment. 
Susanna Cahalan, who started out herself as one of his biggest fans, came to realize the problems with his research. He lied in his paper about the symptoms he reported to the psychiatric staff about himself. He apparently dropped one person from the study so that he could present the pseudo-patient's experiences as uniformly negative. And then he lied about why he dropped that person. He failed to remove the data from this pseudo-patient from the study. It's doubtful whether some of his pseudo-patients even existed. And it's doubtful whether the numbers he presented in the study are accurate at all. This is a scientific cautionary tale. And it's not the only one. In science today, and especially in psychiatry, there is what is known as the replication crisis, where the results of famous experiments, or experiments in general, including some famous ones, cannot be replicated when people try to check them and run them again. That can suggest problems like the fraud found in the Rosenhan experiment. It brings discredit on the enterprise of science, and it hurts people. So we need to be on the lookout for similar cases of scientific fraud in the future. Jimmy, what further resources can we present to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to Susanna Cahalan's book, The Great Pretender, also Rosenhan's original paper on being sane in insane places, information about the Rosenhan experiment, David Rosenhan, an article that Susanna Cahalan wrote on him, information about Bethlehem Royal Hospital, Nellie Bly, her article, 10 Days in a Madhouse, as well as the book, 10 Days in a Madhouse, that she published. We'll have information on insulin coma therapy, lobotomy, electroshock therapy, a video interview with David Rosenhan, the American Psychiatric Association on Schizophrenia, information about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and finally, the C-SPAN interview with Susanna Cahalan. Excellent. So that does it for us from the, for this time. What are your theories about the famous Rosenhan experiment? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for doing the video and animation work on this episode. You can check out the work they do and hire them yourself. You can look at the video work they do at my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I would really appreciate it if you would uh, hit the like button and also the subscribe button and the bell notification so that you always get notified whether I have a new Mysterious World video or one of the other videos I put out occasionally. Um, I am trying to grow my channel, so thank you so much for subscribing. Also. I want to say a special thank you to Dom's wife, Melanie, and daughter, Isabella, for providing voice work during the Nellie Bly segment of today's show. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're traveling to the Washington, D.C. area in the year 2002. It was a tense time, just the year after 9-11, and suddenly snipers began shooting at people at random. It caused a nationwide panic, and next week, we'll be telling you about the D.C. Beltway sniper case and what the public knew about how they were caught. 
Then, the week after that, we'll be telling you the other side of the story and reveal what the public didn't know about how the Beltway snipers were caught. So you'll want to hear both the public story and the secret private story. Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at Jimmy's YouTube channel, where you should hit the bell to get notifications. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 262. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash science.